Redesign Travel is an interview series and podcast where we chat to experts, entrepreneurs, designers, researchers, and travelers of the world to explore how we can reimagine, reinvent, redesign, and regenerate travel. I'm your host, Elena Rodriguez Blanco. Welcome to today's journey. Today, we have Anthony Rocco with us. He's more than just an experienced designer. He's also been known for the infamous Latitude Society in San Francisco. He's also been featured in Priya Parker's Art of Gathering, which I absolutely love and recommend, and has focused his work on individuals, their relationships, and the experiences that build culture and bring about organizational transformation. His current project aims to teach everyone the basic skills of experience design through following their innate curiosity. Anthony, we're honored to have you in today's show. Welcome. How are you? Where are you? And how is life? I'm, I'm honored to be. Thank you for having me on your show. I am currently on the land of the Ohlone tribe, uh, which is so-called San Francisco, California. It is uh, a beautiful morning here. The rains just came and I'm feeling, yeah, super settled and really grateful to be here. Great. And I was curious, because we haven't talked in a while, what is one thing that you have been, I know you're a man of deep thought and questioning, and I've been wondering what question are you having in your day-to-day nowadays and what has brought about some perhaps pearl of information or wisdom in this month? Right now, there's one that kind of comes up that feels kind of interesting to kind of talk about in terms of travel, but it's kind of almost time travel. During this time period uh, that we all kind of find ourselves in, and in certain parts of the world especially, uh, are more locked down than others, I have been getting very interesting people from my past reaching out to me. And there would be like, friends from high school and friends from university and people that I worked with that I just haven't talked to in over a decade. And so it's been really interesting to catch up with them, you know, set up a call and just kind of like drop into a conversation. And what it brings up is this really sort of interesting, like I'm able to access parts of memory like in in the conversation memories will arise or parts of myself that I've kind of forgotten about will arise and it sort of feels like the way that when I'm I'm very fond of traveling and I love traveling but traveling to a place that I maybe haven't been in a long time and and I and I walk down the streets and so it's sort of like walking down the streets of my own self and remembering like oh there's there's this little section and this little section and and it's quite an amazing little thing. So I've been really kind of sitting with like, oh, all these kind of parts of self and, and just kind of reflecting on how much kind of growth has, has happened in, you know, a decade since living here in San Francisco. Leave it to you to bring uh, time travel to the conversation of sure, how to redesign happy. travel. <laughs> sure, and that's so deep what you say, right? Because in the end, like travel is about all these memories and moments that happen that get ingrained and become part of us. 
yep. and how we can access those and not only compare ourselves with different versions of ourselves, but also see what potential or what other parts can be awakened. And that can also happen mm -hmm. through uh, relationships with people, relationships with places. And I know you're uh, one of the experienced designers that have taken a great depth in doing this type of places that exist without a place, I would like to call it. And what are some tips, especially thinking about this connection between moments and travel and some things that you have learned from designing this very immersive experiences that have been so yeah life-changing for for people to participate in so what i hear is sort of like how can we be more intentional about kind of creating is it is it in physical spaces or out of physical space like both both there's a few things that I often kind of call people back to when kind of considering how to be more intentional about the experience that they're creating for customers or clients or employees or even themselves. So if we're working with like physical experiences, because that's what I, I yearn for right now, there's a few things where the considerations of the multiple dimensions of experience. So working with the sense, the senses, the sensorial experiences, oftentimes the subtleties of each of those senses is not given the time or consideration or value of, of, of being a necessary part of the design. It's a very obvious and kind of oftentimes low hanging fruit, but actually when it's done well with the things that I've been a part of, we almost always start as a grounding point with what are the five senses at each moment along the journey and what story or journey are they constructing so that you're having sense change through moments. And this can both be a controlled change, but also just a natural change. So if you're taking someone on a, on a journey through city environment to nature or things like that, like being aware of if, if you're not controlling that sense, how are you at least drawing people's attention to that thing so that they can kind of take a moment and appreciate, oh, right now in San Francisco, the the we have a lot of cherry blossoms happening and there's this kind of like sweet fragrance in the air so it's it's combined with the kind of smells of a of a city but there's something about just kind of pausing for a moment and calling one's attention to that thing so i think you know without getting super technical or, or having a lot more like advanced techniques if people can kind of just call themselves back to at any key point along their journey, even if it's inside of a hotel, if it's inside of a, a conference event, anything like that, what are sort of the key moments of sense experience along the journey and how do they support or ladder into the larger vision or goals that you have? You know, it's, it's something that I, I feel is oftentimes overlooked and, and sort of when you're just having an event or something like that, you're really focused on the logistics. And this is, I kind of call it the wedding 
the wedding planning problems where you're just, you're so focused on getting all the guests like in and out of the event that you you lose sight of the the subtle details of what they're actually experiencing along the way that they're at, that they're actually going to sort of take with them. Obviously logistics are a very important part, but they don't elevate the the experience of the guests to that heightened sort of immersive state that a smell of perfume at a key moment can like trigger something. Cuz what we're really talking about to bring it back to, to time travel if you're actually using those things, a key sense at a given moment will trigger in someone, you can both look at this from a neurobiological standpoint, but but just also having experienced it yourself, touching to your own experience of this, that a smell will bring you back into a moment or will instill a deeper memory of a thing. And how do you remember your experience is just as important as how you're actually experiencing it in the moment. So obviously we're in a moment in time where physical experiences aren't necessarily always available. So what do we do in sort of like the virtual space? And obviously there's folks who go down a path of wanting to virtualize everything, which is a valid way of going about it, but not really my way. <laughs> I, I'm not very uh, much a big fan of personally my experience of like virtual reality or augmented reality or these sorts of things that want to replicate reality in a certain way. So what I tend to kind of prefer or like or for myself, the, the experiences that I kind of create for myself are since we are separated, since we aren't able to gather what are the things that we can do? What are the things that I can do that I otherwise actually wouldn't be able to do if I was in the room with people? And so when I approach the situation from that point of kind of questioning the, the curiosity that I try to practice, it, it shifts the situation of trying to make the thing like the other thing. I think a great example or story of this is, and, and maybe this is a, a weird reference, but I studied film and I'm, a, I'm still a cinephile, is that when I was kind of coming of age, there was a transition point between cinema, all of film, all of movies being shot on literal celluloid 35 millimeter like film and moving into digital, right? Digital cameras were getting more and more advanced. And there was a huge kind of debate over whether or not digital would surpass film. And at some point, one of my professors kind of just said, they're not the same thing. Don't try to make the other one like the other one. There's things that you can do with both and they both will be beautiful in their own way, but you're comparing apples and oranges. So just embrace what, if you're gonna choose which one to use, just embrace the strengths and the weaknesses that that one has. So for me, if I'm designing a uh, a non-physical experience, then I ask questions like, "What what is it that I can get everyone to do that I wouldn't otherwise, and depending upon the meeting or the event or things like that, what are subtle things that would would create a little bit of magic that 
would be difficult or impossible to kind of pull off inside of a, a live event and kind of like go from there. Um, and I, I find when you use that frame, it kind of opens up a lot more possibility rather than uh, disappointment that we just can't do the thing that we were planning on doing. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I think definitely adding the virtual as a design constraint is exciting. Yeah. And also uh, because you have a different spaces, you have everyone's house or wherever they're connected from. And you have all these props and things that you could use there that maybe even allow for further intimacy that even a space where yeah. we're in a conference room don't have. You're, right? you're, st you're staring into people's homes, which is actually a really weird thing. But we oftentimes don't actually stop and consider, oh, everyone's in their home. They have access to things that are more personal than they would bring to a conference or an event or something like that. And, and oftentimes we're trying to hide it with like a curtain or you know amr camera towards a wall that doesn't have stuff on it but there's actually there's actually really interesting opportunities there to go like oh let's recognize what what we do have to work with yeah the nice part of really approaching this from a design perspective right because otherwise we end yeah. up just recreating bad or half version of whatever we had in, in real life, so to speak. You mentioned before, and I mentioned it also, um, maybe you can tell us a bit about the project that you were doing uh, with Latitude Society for people who are not familiar with it, sure. and as much as you can explain it, also for grasping uh, real life, in-depth, immersive experience. And perhaps um, later we can talk about how uh, we can extrapolate some of those items to where we are at now and for designing travel as well. Sure. But just knowing sure. the project would be great. You know, talking about it, I'll do my best kind of a high level. There's way more information in more in-depth articles and videos and, and even documentaries and things like that, in which I, if people are, if their curiosity is piqued by me talking about it, I really encourage them to kind of go down the rabbit hole, so to speak, as we would say. So essentially the latitude is or was a experiment of kind of creating a new form of social club, gathering space, community building center, whatever you would kind of call it. But, but it came about through the kind of question of, of what would it look like to do that thing if the grounding principles or the focus of it is around immersive experiences and, and focusing that both for a community of those sorts of creators and also expanding beyond that community. Just for context, obviously San Francisco is a very uh, artistic place with a long history. I've talked about it in other places. You know, this is the gateway to Burning Man and those, those sorts of really immersive and, and participatory sort of events. So it's kind of no surprise that it emerges in this place. But basically the Latitude was constructed to have a membership clubhouse, which was sort of like the headquarters of the thing where you would go through an initiation experience. And, and when you were invited into the society through another member, you would go through the initiation, which took you on a journey, both through the physical space of the building, which was constructed with an elaborate and beautifully handmade wooden slide 
taking you down into a a small sort of set of rooms where you would have tactile experiences one of the rooms you would kind of uh, have no light and kind of go through a tactile uh, maze that you would kind of crawl through and emerge to find a, a beautiful sort of story told to you and there's sort of a, a projection system that would kind of tell you the the narrative story of how the society kind of came to be and then kind of take you into the what was called the lounge where you would kind of sit and interact with the space a little bit more before at which point you would then be instructed to emerge out of the clubhouse space into the streets of San Francisco and be given through your phone delivered sort of cues and prompts of where to go and there would be physical items embedded in the sidewalks or on the walls. We also had bots set up in windows and other locations and we had people at bars, actual, you know, just the bartenders at bars like working with us to deliver, you know, clues and content to members that were moving through. So you, you would have these sort of little scavenger hunt like activities outside of the space. And then once that initiation sort of happened, you would then have access as a now member of the society to come to what were called praxis or events, basically just a gathering, a workshop, whatever you would want to kind of call it. And so my main role was I both functioned as the guide, so to speak, through initiations. So I held a lot of space for people, people's experience as they were going through initiation, which, you know, obviously this is a very intense initiation. So it ranged from extreme delight and thrilling to intense emotional breakdowns. And sometimes I would just, you know, sit with the person while they cried to then on the evenings, every evening and on the weekends, we would have events. And so I would design and facilitate these sorts of gatherings for groups of 12 to 15 people that were generally strangers. You know, obviously you would get invited by someone that you knew, but once inside the mixture of the community, especially one of my goals and one I think my long-term kind of trajectories of my career is how to create culture amongst the the people there. You know, I think my joke at the time was I was I was in charge of of making of making the cult the cult. Like, you know, uh, at one point someone called it an art cult, but how how do you actually get the culture and community to connect and and congeal in a way that people feel bonded and, and trusting and, and connected to the other people in the room. And so we created a series of moments for that to happen solo, but I think the, where I was really drawn and the magic that I really brought to it was as a facilitator and as a designer, thinking through what are the, what are the community events and what are the community experiences more than just a typical party per se, where everyone kind of just shows up and, and drinks and talks. Cause to me, that's a very kind of standard game or event or whatever we want to kind of put labels on it as an experience designer I put a lot of labels on it where there's just the we're all kind of playing the implicit game of drinks and conversation and there's different kind of levels of games being played in that container but no one's necessarily directing it it's just this sort of default thing that most people 
learn how to adapt to because it's what kind of society passes along as being the the kind of typical status quo form of gathering but there's a lot of ways that we can intentionally gather which you know is is the name of the book of Priya's book that mm-hmm. I'm also a huge fan of so so yeah I think that I'll kind of pause there I think that's a pretty high level overview of of what the project was yeah what the project was and if people want more granular details they're they're out there yeah thank you Anthony for sharing I think um the point about creating culture and even if it's a small experience of like two three hours uh, whoever is guiding that experience also has needed to be part of the transformation themselves and I think that's really shown in this kind of initiation and then passing on and something we sometimes forget when you know we're designing experiences for others that you know or even more as consultants where we're asked to you know come up with an experience we're often saying the company itself the organization itself needs to kind of seep this um, vibe to be for that culture to be there even if it's then a two three hour experience and I was wondering how do you create that how can you pass in that culture what are some ideas of how if I am ready let's say as a manager today to create culture change what are some things that I need to be looking at to really guide my organization through that and then of course mm-hmm. hoping that the experiences that I lead and I'm, I'm also bringing this up because we're talking about travel and an mm-hmm. industry that needs to kind of rethink itself mm-hmm. right now from yeah. the core so I would love also some inputs from from your cre- culture creation wisdom to yeah. how that yeah, can happen. Yeah. Yeah, so there's two ways that I want to approach this question because, you know, the latitude was, God, almost five, six, even seven years ago now. So, you know, my career has transformed a lot in terms of how taking immersive experiences has brought me to now working with high level CEOs and managers, really talking about culture change and using the the tools and techniques that I've developed in that sort of more playful, maybe entertaining space to really apply. I almost kind of call it going from like, you know, fiction movies to like nonfiction documentaries or something like that, like really working with internal culture of employees and that sort of level of transformation as well as industry transformation and how are we thinking of of industry sort of strategy. So there's two things that I want to say to that. The first is the assessment of the current culture is oftentimes a step that is way overlooked. Everyone just comes to me and says, well, we want to produce culture change. And it's like, well, you first actually need to understand what the current cultural climate is because you can't begin to affect change without actually doing this. And obviously there's lots of traditional tools of doing 360 reviews and and all these sorts of things. But I actually think there's a far simpler ways of kind of going about it that you can begin to understand where is the cultural epicenter? Is it really a top-down organization? And, and more often than not, especially the companies that I'm working with that are older in terms of being, you know, close to maybe a hundred years old or, you know, having seen multiple generations go through the leadership, oftentimes it's a very top-down thing. And so a manager 
is, is unfortunately in that really complex position where they're talking about producing culture change to maybe show their you know, executive leaders why this thing is important. But at the same time, if the executive leaders aren't the ones who are initiating the change or themselves buying into it, then oftentimes the, the, the lower part of the organization, frontline employees, won't begin to adopt that sort of behavior because culture subtly is not a directive order. It's an, a thing that grows organically and it really grows organically through actual modeling and, and what I call like templating, right? So a, a great example of this is I had a, a kind of client situation where, you know, I was kind of brought in to kind of help look at some of these dynamics that are kind of occurring in this team. And what happened was the, the manager is kind of bringing me in, but their boss, who's kind of a regional director or something like that, isn't really bought into the process. And so we go into this session where there's, you know, a, a full team of people. I think at this point, it was, there was a lot of marketing people on this team that range from really junior, really new people to people who've been there for a number of years, this manager of this team, and then their, and then their boss, this kind of regional director. And, and the person comes in and, you know, I'm sort of starting the meeting, trying to ground and, and actually give a space for people to begin to understand what they need individually as a team. Like, what, what are these things? And, and I have a whole thing that is more detailed and sensory, but what I want to get to in the story is that this regional director kind of just basically decided that this was a poofy exercise. They didn't really want to share their feelings and they just left. They literally left the meeting and it was like, I don't have time for this. And that literal action communicates to a whole team of people that their needs aren't really actually that important as literal human beings. And so you can say we have a mission of this and we're people focused and you can say all these sort of lip servicey sort of things, but if you're not acting and behaving and embodying those things in literal day-to-day -day meetings, then you're not actually doing that thing. And so you can say it all you want, but eventually the culture will erode out um, right from under you. And so, I'll kind of like say that is, is the tricky thing about culture is recognizing that it's not a thing that has a quick fix. It actually requires embodied practice, especially from in these big organizations, these like top leaders, <clears throat> excuse me. Then this, the second thing that I want to say, especially from travel, and I haven't, I haven't done a ton of work with travel clients. So so I'll kind of not speak directly to travel, but I think there's other industries that I've worked that have similar sort of things of being a really, I want, I want to say like a timeless industry, so to speak, where it's like, oh, well, this is just a thing that we can just keep, you know, doing in the way that it's working and we don't really need to like innovate on it per se, or maybe do minor tweaks or innovations or things like that, you know, but then you talk to someone that you'd be like, well, how did anyone expect what was going to happen to happen and impact the travel industry the way that it's working? And it's like, well, that's because you weren't asking hard enough questions of yourself. You weren't playing out 
really complicated and worst case scenarios. You weren't actually doing the strategic planning work that I try to do with clients that actually takes you into scenarios that are uncomfortable, that are kind of scary. So I was working with a client and one of the things that I try to do in these sort of strategic planning sessions is let's get out of the mindset of what it is that you do in contemporary time and try to actually distill down the more timeless thing that you're doing to then guide and direct. So, you know, I know it sounds really interesting, like complicated or, or obtuse, but it's, it's very simple. It's like, if you're, if you're an airline and that's your industry, can you actually dig down deeper to the idea of we're actually in the business of helping relocate people? Like that's an extreme example. And obviously I'd work with a team to kind of like get to a more definitive place with it. But we, we're actually in the business of relocating people. Like maybe that's a short term, maybe that's a long term. We're actually just like in the business of helping people get from one physical place to another. Right now, the manifestation of that thing is these giant mechanical birds that fly around and use jet fuel. Maybe we'll actually evolve that to be different modes of transportation. So the airline is then able to not identify with the technological manifestation of that thing and actually be in a deeper space to then evolve the thing. Whatever advanced technology can come out, actually, we're going to we're looking at how you know carbon emissions from jet fuel is really bad for the planet. So actually what we wanna do is think and innovate new ways that we're going to like give people who don't want to pay into that destruction of the environment, a new solution for moving through space, you know, like and traveling to where they want to go and approach the thing. So you become, and, and, and thinking of it in a, in a timeless way, I always try to pull people back to the timeless thing humans throughout time are migratory like we've always traveled from here to there to there to there so so that so travel is a timeless industry but if you're attached to the manifestation of it being well we just build jet planes where we just you know operate jet planes then the minute that that form of the industry dies which there will always be kind of seasonal shifts in any industry that you know, before there was jet planes, there was ships. And, you know, before that it was, you know, trains or what. So like that, that thing will sort of bloom and die. And if, and if you're kind of only caught in that wave of it, then you're going to also be caught in the, the death cycle of it. But if you can actually continue to tap into what are the ways in which we're providing this universal human need the universal human need is people needing to go from point A to point B, then the ways that you're thinking strategically are going to actually map to that need rather than how to, you know, reduce costs by, you know, providing cheaper food on a plane. You know, like you're, you're only addressing the, the very minor symptoms of your illness. You're not addressing the larger sort of systemic change. And that's, I think you're seeing that across industry, across governments of, of a lot of our generation and younger really calling to the attention of, we need to use our design thinking toolkits to not just be addressing symptoms, 
but addressing these deeper systemic things that are rooted in universal human needs. So I'll yeah. kind of pause there. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I think um, those two points are right on um, for the for the travel industry, especially from your first point on how we can't really think outside the box without looking at the box itself, because the yeah. box creation has been a result of actions that have led to that culture, right? So yes. what actions have led to that and understanding that can give you so much in-depth knowledge of what needs to be changed and why, and also create the movement to be like everyone changing together. Uh, instead of like it coming like top down, as you were saying. And I, and I think that's definitely relevant. I mean, for my clients in the travel industry, they've just grown so fast, so much that there has been no intentional culture creation. It's just kind of been whatever happens uh, and it's caught. And I think this point about uh, culture is so important, not only to be able to reinvent yourself, but also to be able to manage online, you know, and to be able to yep. take teams to, yep. to that space. So I think both those points are super on point to, to the travel industry. And um, to start wrapping up, Anthony, I had two last questions dash thoughts. I know you've been uh, really uh, looking into curiosity as a space mm -hmm. to begin questions, to begin change, and perhaps to put together for you as a point of merger of everything you've been doing so far. So mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about that, and also I know you're launching a new course around it, so it'd be great if you tell us a bit what you're doing with that. And then I'll ask you my final question after that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, I'm working with a number of both like personal clients and the ways in which I've been exploring has been, well, I guess what I'll say is realizing that experience design is an emerging discipline in practice, right? Or, or it's, you know, it's getting more formations of its sort of like toolkits and things like that. And so I think what I'm, what I was sort of realizing, again, I kind of take things back to film terms or something like that. But it's sort of like, well, if I have a camera, I can teach you the mechanics of photography, which I've learned through many teachers and have many great teachers about that. And there's a lot of mechanics to photography about actually how to you know, work with either film or digital and you're making all sorts of choices. But then I've also worked with teachers who have taught me to find and and capture beauty which is a very different thing than the mechanics of taking a photo of like what what is beautiful what is composition what also what is my lens what do i find beautiful and how do i compose a shot to like capture something so i think the the diverging path for me was sort of realizing that rather than the two i'm i'm maybe less of a teacher who wants to sort of show the mechanics of experience design because that's kind of less interesting to me because there's lots of people and courses and things like showing that stuff but more like i have a way of sort of capturing stuff that i find beautiful or thinking the questions that i ask and like how i form those questions how i come to those questions that is a a much more art than science way of about it and I think curiosity is, is the way into that. And so the idea to invite people into that that are hungry for, uh, even if they're just beginning to think about designing experiences for customers, clients, employees, themselves, whomever, 
you know, I, I think even to continue to use the metaphor of photography, you don't actually need to know too much about the mechanics to begin to capture, you know, really great photos or, or to, to find your own kind of unique way of, of seeing the world. So it doesn't really require that there's not much prerequisite necessary to start to make beautiful and immersive um, experiences. And I, I really find that curiosity is, is the way into that. Um, when people can start to work with that level of questioning of thinking through the moments, thinking through the experiences they want to sort of have. So I'm really excited about this and the project and yeah, and it's just a continue. It's my, it's my own form of practice is curiosity of what would it be like to kind of share this and start teaching at this level. So it's an, it's an experiment. It's a, it's a prototype as our friends would say, and we're going to continue to just see how it evolves and what it kind of becomes. There's, there's, both a north star of where I would like to see the project go, but also not attached to the direction. It you know it might morph and change and and get pretty radical. So we'll see how it goes. But we're launching, and by the time people are listening to this, they're welcome to sign up and and join our stuff. And I'm yeah, I think I'll just leave it there. Yeah, we'll put the we'll put the link in the episode notes for people to be yes, able to yes. join. But I think that's that's like a really good from where you started, you know, all the small details and experience design and how is actually curiosity the um, I don't know if to call it the skill or the value that will take yeah. you down uh, that observation, right? And you can't uh, something that's hard. It's really hard to to um, teach in a way it's more like something that could be modeled which we also talked about today so great and i'm very very curious now to see how how you open up the space for curiosity for others in a virtual space i imagine also i don't know if it's over yeah virtual. <laughs> yeah yeah that's, uh, yeah definitely so that's gonna be a, virtual for right now yeah an extra layer great and then uh, anthony one question i'd like to ask is about a transformational travel experience or experience that you've had in the past that you would like to share and why was it so gosh i have so many i will say that i Maybe some others, especially listening to this, maybe feel like I do where travel was such a big part of my life process and to have it kind of taken away has been really, uh, really challenging. Um, it's been really interesting to kind of sit with all that, all that it brings up. I think as an American, I grew up in the suburbs of America it became sort of a mission of mine to really sort of get out of the States for a period, especially after I graduated from university um, and was kind of going anywhere in the world, someone would buy me a plane ticket. <laughs> it's kind of, I was a working artist, I was a traveling artist, and it was kind of just the, I would say yes to pretty much anything that would take me somewhere. And, and I think one of the, some of the most profound moments that I had as an American, and, and maybe this also sort of goes along for maybe some Europeans, but maybe not, I'll just speak from American perspective. When I, when I visited uh, Rio, 
and I also visited Manila in, in the Philippines, I saw a world that I hadn't really experienced. The, the flavelas in Rio, the, the way in which there is in Rio, there's sort of this like extreme affluence and extreme poverty. And you kind of see both of them like right next to each other. And I remember also like, and it's not to say, and it's not to glorify poverty because I don't want to do that either. Like we can, we can end poverty if we really like all got together and did it. But, but what was interesting is, is seeing like the, the culture to bring it back to culture, the culture, there was a, a level of culture. I'll just leave it there that existed that I didn't have in the States uh, growing up in the suburbs where it's like, we have all the things we have all the, the, needs of the body met and of the the kind of hungry pursuing of more commodities and and access to like all these things but but I was a very depressed kid and I, I looked around and everyone else I saw was very depressed and they were very like kind of eaten away inside they're just kind of grinding away at whatever this like they kind of have no meaning in their life and and being around folks who had quote unquote, less than anything that I ever had in my life and being happy and being like content and finding meaning and like all of these sort of things that especially American capitalism like promise um, was was a pretty radical like mind expanding experience for me as in, in my young sort of 20s. because so I was like, well, clearly they have something. What is the something that they have? And uh, I think where I kind of landed with it was that they, they have community, they have culture, they have these things that aren't tied visibly to any of the exterior possessions of, of money. And that's not to say that if obviously, and, and I've been in situations in my lifetime where money has been extremely difficult and, and I'm making tough choices between food and rent and, and these sorts of things. And so I don't want to in any way diminish that people who have money don't have to like think about these sorts of things. Like it's, it's a very complicated thing to begin to unpack, but, but that there's, yeah, that, that money itself does not, or money and things itself do not meet this sort of like deeper human need, especially being tribal creatures for millennia, you know, for millennia before we ever came into the kind of current formation of society that we currently find ourselves in and, and the, the disconnection. And so, yeah, I think when we travel, we're able to see that there's human experience outside of the one that we're currently in that can remind us of like deeper human needs that maybe we weren't in touch with because the society that we grew up in, I'll speak for myself, like the society that I grew up in didn't, didn't address that need. It didn't, it didn't really even address that it existed. And so I think for me, traveling has always been that of, of wanting to see human culture and how it has evolved 
what state it is in currently and and what, yeah, to, to kind of see those bits of, of cultural technology and, and incorporate them into my own life so that I can kind of become more fully human in a way. Thank you. Yeah, leave it to Latin America to do this. I mean, slap yeah, in the face. Right? <laughs> yeah, I know. So yeah, it's great. Thank you so much, Anthony. Thank you for all the nuggets that you shared, all the wisdom, and also yeah, all your experiences. And yeah, thank you for coming in and um, being you. This was such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thank you so much. Thank you.